You've heard me say lots of times that when I first started working with children who participated in self-harm as a, as a maladaptive coping strategy, uh, that it, it baffled me in the same way that it baffled parents, that, that I had known a kid who maybe burned himself with cigarettes when we were in high school, but it was one. And when the numbers of adolescents who participate in self-harm activities rival and often surpass the number of adolescents who self-report using cannabis or drinking. There was no doubt we were facing an issue that could not be ignored. And so as children started to come into the facility when we were at old, old version sober home, I was calling every psychiatrist, psychologist, doctor I knew of to say, what's the difference between self-harm and addiction? Because I can't find any. The, 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 the triggers are the same. The, the cycle is the same. The results seem the same. And not one, not a single one could, could verbalize any difference. So let's just say it's addiction. Well, I'm honored to have Amy Min Han Corey with us. Amy is eight years sober today. She is celebrating eight years of sobriety of self-harm with us here on Beyond Risk and Back. And she's still young. We can still talk to her after eight years about what she's got going on and why a teenager would ever hurt themselves. Draw a blade across their skin rub an eraser on the top of their arm until it bled and then pick the scab so it never healed. Why? What is the future of scars? Thank you for joining me on Beyond Risk and Back. My name is Aaron Hewitt, your host. Thank you for listening, liking, subscribing, sharing, and please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help. My guest today is Amy. Amy, thank you so much for being on the show and congratulations. Happy birthday. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be on the show and for it to be my eight years today and to be able to share um, just how far I've come and how far anyone can really come in their recovery and their life is, is an honor. So thank you. You're absolutely welcome. The honor and pleasure is all ours to be able to hear directly from someone about self-harm to because it's one thing to hear the doctors and to get the research and it's another thing to hear from someone who has successfully recovered and to get the why to get as an as a parent to understand why would my child even consider this as a strategy how does hurting make things better like that's that's just this it's this metaphorical allegorical question but it's not metaphorical nor is it an allegory because once you begin to understand self-harm you see how it does make things better, but we'll get to that because I want you to tell your version. I want to hear your story. So Amy, when did it start? How did you end up where you are? What was the path in between? Yeah. So my self-harm was very much, you know, I was very young. I was about eight and nine where my entire life was, you know, my child lived a very, you know, special childhood. I grew up in a very small town in Oregon. And um, externally, it was a very, you know, we did activities, we did this and this. Internally, um, you know, it was hard. You know, there wasn't one thing that pushed me over the edge. Um, around eight and nine, my parents got divorced. My mom got 
um, diagnosed with uh, stage five ovarian cancer. I was going into middle school. And so the glass was already tipping. It was already just too much for any child to really get a grip on what was going on and to feel safe in the places they wanted to feel safe in. And so not feeling safe at home, I would go to school, which was middle school, and I would be bullied. I would be bullied. I'd be hated on. I would be called fat. I just never got external um, safety. And so it influenced my mind, my developing mind, but also just my actions. And I felt like there wasn't a point. There wasn't a reason to really, you know, keep going because where was I going to go? And so I attempted suicide and it didn't work. And at that point, it just was a hatred. It was, I was so upset that I couldn't kill myself. And so I never necessarily tried to self-harm to actually kill myself, but I knew if I went too far, I wouldn't care. And so I started self-harming due to the depression, due to the bullying. Um, I was called hate and fat and told to die so much. I actually, I actually carved those words into my arm through self-harm, along with many, many other scars that I am very open and show off nowadays in my career. But it just kept going like that. But after middle school, so, you know, three years of middle school, everything got better in the sense of my mindset. You know, I was, wasn't getting bullied. I wasn't depressed, but it became an addiction. It became my only way of comforting myself and coping with whether I was happy, whether I was sad, whether I was heartbroken. It was the way that made me feel comfortable. No matter what emotion I felt, that was my outlook on you know how to deal with it. And it not necessarily was because I was depressed, because I was bullied. It just honestly was the only thing that I felt safe doing. And that's a very interesting mindset to have as a child. But when your only way of comfort is a specific way for so long, you get reliant on that, no matter if it's toxic or healthy. And so it continued that way for another couple of years until I was about 15 or 16, um, right in between when my mom was also fighting her cancer and told us that she had about six months to live. And it was during the time that I knew what I wanted to do because along that time of that nightmare, I was also living the dream because I was doing vocal lessons with um, a vocal coach who was trained by the guy who made Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder. And so I was doing that balance and I had a direction and I had the hope and I had a hero of myself in another few years on who I actually wanted to be and knew that I could not continue living this way if I wanted to be that person. And when my mom finally was saying how, you know, she only has a certain amount to live, I really understood then what life and death was. It's kind of interesting because I experienced attempted suicide myself and obviously went through suicidal thoughts that entire time. But to actually see it in someone else very close, it made me understand more what life and death was and how to live fullest and live as, you know, if you were to die. And so I chose in that time that, you know, I'm going to get better for myself 
to improve my life, but also to help, you know, show my mom that she can, she and I can have a great rest of our lives together. And so when she passed away six months later, that was the final test of my sobriety on whether or not, since I coped with the smallest things on, you know, high school heartbreak and, you know, not like feeling left out, very small things on the perspective of self-harm, I would instantly self-harm. Here is the really, you know, big test of my mom passing away. And I'm very honored. I'm very proud to say that I was able to get through it with, you know, knowing the balance between a healthy way to cope, which, you know, obviously is validating your emotions and crying and accepting that grief, going to therapy, this and that, other than self-harming, because I think that was the biggest thing people would worry about is that I would kill myself too because of my mom died because of the past problems I had. And so when I was able to recover that, you know, obviously felt like, okay, you know, this is a start. I can do this. And so then I moved to Nashville, Tennessee and, um, you know, had my music career signed to artist development with um, Kent Wells, who was Dolly Parton's producer and did my music career and went into mental, was always talking about mental health, but specifically then, started um, being a public speaker and this and that. And so it all kind of, you know, was a journey, but it definitely, you know, I had to go through that really hard time to really understand both sides of the mindset, being in it and now being out of it and to find empathy with those and to understand that this is a really serious thing that really needs to be talked about, but it also is something that, you can't always tell to get better. You can't always decide for another person when that time is to stop because we all want it. But the reality of them actually listening to another person over themselves is very low. So I very much try with my career now to not specifically tell them what to do, but to show them that it's possible to overcome it. And it's not only possible to overcome it, but you can then create something so much more beautiful and better because of it. So really finding that light from the darkness. And I'm very, you know, lucky and honored and worked really hard to kind of get to that point now to be able to be on your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm curious about something you said that, that I think begins the, the, to trigger the conversation around self-harm because, because when you're talking about earlier that, that it was a comfort and the, the, the concept of it's a comfort to cut, it's a, that, 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 that doing that thing where you're, you're drawing blood and hurting yourself becomes comfortable. Can you find the words to explain that to a parent who says, why on earth would my son, my daughter do this? I think it's really, it's a way to accept themselves. I feel like when a teenager or when you're very young, there's so many opinions on who you're meant to be, who you want to be. And it gets to a point where you don't even know yourself. You feel that numbness. You feel like you just don't belong anywhere. And sometimes, and a lot of times, I would do it to punish myself on who I am. And that was the very big beginning. I was ashamed of who I was, and no one was there to tell me anything better. And so it led me to this feeling, to the feeling I got when I self-harm, when I cut myself, was a release of life. It was a release that I was still alive, 
and that I, you know, I liked that feeling, but I didn't like myself. And so that made it a lot worse in my sense because I was craving that feeling of life by self-harming, but I didn't like myself at all. So I continued to give myself those scars to purposely cause more trauma and more hate towards myself. Then it became into that comfort because that then pushed me to that emotional side of it. Like, okay, this is what I feel when I do it. Now, when I feel any emotion, that is my release. That is the way I handle things and deal with things. Though it may be very toxic, I'm not, I'm not that at that age where I can fully understand the long-term consequences of it. And I wasn't going to listen to anyone who really could tell me because every time someone would tell me they understood and, and tried to be there for me, it made me feel more alone because it wasn't anything that I felt or, you know, thought. And it made everything worse, which made me more isolated to make me more wanting to do it to my, to make myself understand it as well. And so it just is a very isolating feeling, but that is where that comfort is, is because you have no other place to go. A lot of parents begin the process under the assumption that self-harm is a way of seeking attention. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah. accurate? No. Um, I hid my self-harm for an entire freshman year of high school. An entire year and a half, no one knew that I self-harmed. It wasn't until my parents noticed that a lot of the knives and scissors were missing. But no one noticed because I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want it to become a big deal because I enjoyed doing it. And I knew once people found out, I would have to stop. And so it's not necessarily an intention-seeking thing because it, sh it, it shows a very kind of, at the, I, I feel like insecure is the wrong word, but it's something that you just, you don't want people to know because of the misperception and the societal view of someone who sells harm, because we all see it in movies, we all see it in TV, even at, at that age. It just felt a lot different from what I would see on TV. I wasn't wearing, you know, the makeup, you know, doing this and that with black hair. I have bangs now, but I think it's more stylish than it was. <laughs> but I wasn't necessarily the one you would think would self-harm. And that was the biggest thing is that I was, I, I was very, you know, quiet. I was very active. I was always the light of the things. And I put on a really good show because I didn't want anyone to know that I was put, quote unquote, going to be put in that category. And I'm not saying that is that is a, there is a category. It's just society's view on it because of the media, because of everything that is talked about when it just wasn't outspoken about it. You talked about in your story the long-term effects uh, that mm -hmm. you didn't understand then, but you know, at your age now. And how old are you again? I'm 24 now. So 24 years old. Um, what are the long-term effects? Because I would also assume the parents' version of what long-term effects are versus what you know, because you live with them, what are the ones you're experiencing? You know, 
For me, I don't see scars as a long-term effect. I think a lot of people do, but I very much think scars are very beautiful. I think they show you the battle that you may have lost, but it also shows you the overall war that you've won, especially when you're in recovery. I really think they're beautiful. I think one of the longest-term effects I have with myself is that I am very afraid to get hurt. I'm very afraid to get cut. I don't like, you know moving boxes around or anything. I like stay away from sharp edges, sharp things. Obviously I use, you know, kitchen knives and this and that. And I never look at it and like, oh my gosh, I could cut myself. It's more of, oh my God, if I accidentally get, you know, scratched by an animal or cut myself, my mind will automatically go through that feeling again and go through those emotions again. And so that for me is the most long-term effect that I'm pretty sure that, you know, anyone can outgrow anything. Anyone can find a way to cope with the way they are. I just haven't, you know, been through it enough because I am very safe on that, that way, knowing how bad my, uh, my reaction and my emotion and also my pain tolerance is to keep myself away from those situations where, you don't necessarily look to get hurt again, but it's life and life. You do get hurt. You do get cut. You do get bruised. And that is a very long-term effect. And then I think the other major one is obviously, you know, bug bites and scabs and scars is that constant itching and that sensation from that as well. I've noticed and have become very self-aware of those two particularly. You know, to reiterate the point I said in my intro about there is no difference. Two days before I celebrated 23 years of sobriety, uh, I was sitting on the porch drinking a non-alcoholic beer. I had opened one and I was going to drink it. I love the taste of beer. I have not had a drink of alcohol in 23 years. Two days before my 23rd anniversary of sobriety. I got a non-alcoholic beer. I sat down on the porch. I opened it. I took a drink and I felt the alcohol hit the back of my throat. And I looked because a lot of micro brews are making non-alcoholic beers. And I looked at it and this one had alcohol in it. And somebody had put it in the non-alcoholic case and I had made a mix and match. And my biggest fear in sobriety was that somebody would dose me, that somebody would blow you cannabis smoke in my face that I would accidentally, you know, I would order a virgin daiquiri and someone would give me a real one and it happened, you know, and I, and the next thing I'm standing over the sink, wondering whether I should put my fingers down my throat. Can I handle it? Is that the dragon voice saying it's going to be fine. You're 23 years sober. This isn't, but knowing how fragile my sobriety is, even 23 years later, that that constant itching of a bug bite, or getting a bad scratch. I got bit by a dog last week and I'm looking at a scar. I can't imagine, nor do I understand what you would go through if you had that itchy dog bite scar on your arm and what that would trigger. But I can reference it by saying, yeah, that first drink of alcohol, when I accidentally took a drink of an, of an alcoholic beer instead of a non-alcoholic, my mind went right back to it's all right. Just go ahead and finish it. And I was like, seriously, after 23 years, I got to deal with that void. But yeah, you do. It's, 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 it's insane. And I think it's that balance on just that self-awareness that recovery is for the rest. It just doesn't stop because life doesn't stop. 
What Amy's talking about, getting us clear on what it is as parents we need to do and understand so that we can help our child who is self-harming, this, this is why this show. If this is your first time listening to Beyond Risk and Back, this is why I bring the experts, the people with the stories, the people who know the real deal behind addiction and and dependency and abuse, assault, abandonment, uh, a development of the adolescent brain, because I want parents to have every single tool possible to really, truly love, support, and most of all, understand their teenager who is struggling. To that end, if you go to brabapp.com, B-R-A-B-A-P-P.com, Beyond Risk and Back, Brab, brabapp.com, you're going to find 56 parenting sessions. Some of them are two minutes long, some of them are 20 minutes long, but that is everything I have ever taught parents. In 20 years of coaching and teaching parent workshops and seminars, of running a treatment facility, of working with teenagers, of being a teacher, everything I know from interviewing experts like Amy, to being taught by the doctors and the psychologists and the psychologists and having them work for me, everything I know about these work and these teens, and what I've taught is in that application. And you can watch it on your phone, you can watch it on your laptop, you can watch it on your pad. So go to brabapp.com, I promise you, I priced it right, because I want every parent to have this information. This is not exclusive parent training. This is everything we need. There are three levels to the training, the red, the yellow, the green, just like a traffic light. Red is full stop, beyond risk. Yellow is warning, at risk, and green is go. When your kid's doing well, but you know this child is a world changer, what do you need to do differently as a parent? It's all your parenting tools, tricks, tactics, and techniques. Go to brabapp.com, and I'll see you in the sessions. Let's get back to Amy. Let's learn more. Amy, I would always ask teenagers even as, as recently as last week, I would always ask teenagers, did you cut because you were numb and wanted to feel, or did you cut because you were feeling so much you wanted to release it? Is that an appropriate question, number one? And if it is, what's your, what was your answer? I think it's an appropriate question because I, I did both. And I felt both feelings and both sides of it. It was to a point where... I was numb at first, and so I did it to feel. And somehow that drove me to continue living my life on wanting to feel and understanding then from being a quote-unquote what I call a robot to a human, to from feeling no emotion to motion, from going like, oh my God, I don't feel anything. I need to cut myself. I feel everything. I need to release it. Like I felt both sides of it. And so I think it's a very appropriate question because it makes one think on how to become self-aware of their emotions and to not just, you know, to find their own balance on how to control it and how to find peace within themselves to understand, okay, this is why I'm feeling this way. This is why I'm feeling this way. I understand this is a very good way to cope with this feeling and to find those um boundaries on, you know, how far you go to be able to start coping and dealing with these emotions outside of these kind of more toxic ways, including self-harm, including eating disorders, including, you know, the end of attempted suicide and suicide itself. And so 
being in between and still realizing that I think is that quote unquote, what I call growing pains, the painful times you need to grow within yourself. But I think both questions are appropriate because both I have definitely felt. I've never not had a kid say exactly what you said, that it's both and that it, that it started with one and moved to the other. Mm-hmm. So now th- this brings up another thing that you talked about that I want parents to hear from you why it's true. You talked about how cutting, you know, that you had had that suicide attempt when you were much younger, but that cutting was not a suicidal act. Uh-uh. That's, that's very hard for a parent to understand because that's the image of suicide is, is cutting your wrists, slitting your wrists. So isn't, isn't the act of cutting just practicing suicide or you're feeling so depressed that you cut, but you just can't do it well enough? What's, what's the difference between suicidality and self-harm in your mind? I remember when I attempted suicide, it was, it was a moment of realization that there's a reason why it didn't work out. There is a reason why I was still here in this life and I think I was very angry at that. I really was just done. I really was kind of just like, I just, I don't, I want it to end. And so I was very frustrated that I was still alive. And it was my way of taking myself out or taking it out on myself to know that I, I, I cannot die. And that was the thing is that, you know, you know, you you hear all those horrible stories of continuously attempting suicide and this and this and this, but I don't believe that self-harm is a form of suicide. I, I have seen through many friends who have also been through it that when things get really, really bad with their self-harm, when they're bleeding out, that emotion, like we talked about, turns into fear and they will usually ask for help and go to the hospital. My sister um, did a practicum in a psych ward and saw that with her own eyes. And she called me and she asked me, she's like, you never did this. Like, and I told her, I was like, because I just didn't, I think I was to the point in that time where I didn't care. These kids, you sh- their parents should be proud that they really, really care about living because they're going to the hospital. They're going, they're asking for help and they're more open than I was on that this is happening and that they're fighting with their parents. Them themselves are still trying to figure it out. They just are not communicating with themselves because they don't fully understand themselves either. And so that's why the biggest thing is to understand what that why they're self-harming and have them communicate with themselves what they're trying to do with this self-harm. And that communication within themselves has to come first before that communication with their parents or else it's going to be continuously that back and forth. You need to do this. I can't do this. Well, you have to do this. Well, then I'm not going to do it. Usually when a child hears something they have to do, they usually do the complete opposite. I know that's another reason why mine lasted so long is I had so many voices telling me to stop. And obviously I was not going to do what people told me. I was going to do it for myself before anyone else. And so I really had to understand every single reason why I was self-harming, why I was hating myself and communicate, you know, is this really what I want with my life? Do I want to live the rest of my life self-harming and living, you know, the life that obviously I was meant to live because I couldn't kill myself? 
just this way. And it took, obviously, years for me to develop that. But with that time, with that support from my family, when they found out and they kind of, you know, they obviously encouraged me to go to therapy, which I compromised on doing, but they very much, you know, left me to do it. And that really, I think when I look back, I feel very supported, even though they didn't physically show a lot of support. They trusted me and they trusted that I was going to get better and always encouraged me to, but never told me how. And they knew that I was just going to have to, you know, figure it out on my, by myself. And that is something I remember more than the times that we argued about the self-harm and this and that. When you're out of it, you tend to remember the good times because you don't want to remember that bad times. I have one more question and then I want to talk solely about your recovery. And yeah. because, you know, 29 minutes of like, oh my God, and, and we still have so much joy to talk about. My final question is, did it matter if your parents hid the scissors or hid the knives or locked them up or anything like that? You want to know? I remember that day clearly because they went through my room. They took every single knife, every sharp object and hid it. They hit, and I had two sisters, so obviously they were very confused by it as well. And I remember I was so insanely frustrated to a point where I was just going to like run away because I was like, what, like, what is going on? And I remember we had to go to therapy the next day. And, you know, when you go to therapy sessions, you're with your parents at first and they express to the therapist everything they're doing. And then you have their time alone. I remember they said, we took all the knives of the house and my therapist who I was with for 10 years, who saved my life. She said, Oh no, you can't do that. You have to give these back to her or else she's going to find a worse way to deal with this trauma, to deal with these things. And you just took away. Yes. No, it's not safe, but she has found a safe way, quote unquote, safe way to, to cope with it she's not killing herself. But my therapist was very, very against parents taking away the knives and the scissors because it would lead their child to do something else. It's incredible because uh, one of one of the kids with the most prolific uh, self-harm cases that I ever worked with, um, she the her worst experience, her most intense experience that ended up with her with the most stitches, you know, and, and longest hospital stay. She was in an adolescent acute lockdown facility because of her self-harm. And she was put in an isolation room with the walls covered in padding. And she chewed apart her hospital bracelet and chewed the little snap, the plastic snap into a sharp object and carved her arms up the worst case. And, and the reason why I asked you that question is like, like I said to you offline, I know a lot of these answers, but I wanted parents to hear this from someone who's actually been through it. Is that kids will pull the, the rubber off an eraser and use the metal. They will find a sharp rock. They will, you hiding the knives doesn't do anything. That's not, if, if you took away my drugs, I would drink. If you took away my drink, I would eat. If you took away my food, ultimately I'm going to find a way to use. And that's okay. Enough 
of the the shadow. Let's step into the light. What you said it was when your mom said, "I got six months," and you got to see life and death—the real life and death, not the one that was in your head um, that you were reacting to, but the real life and death struggle—and decided you wanted to live. So, what was the process of living? Because I can only imagine that from that point forward, you still had things happen. There were still breakups. There were still intensity, and there was still desire to harm yourself. What did you do to not? I, so I remember when I, the day that I went cold turkey on a self-harm, I was telling one of my teachers back in high school who I was very close to that I was wanting to do this. I was wanting to be a singer. I was wanting to help people. I was wanting to use something and make something worth my time of this darkness. And he's like, okay, you want to do all these things? Don't just talk about it. Do it show that you can do this. Words mean nothing without the action put behind it. And that was always my drive on continuously being that evidence that you can overcome it, even the worst of the worst. And so moving to Nashville, I was 18 years old. I moved three months after high school. I went in with that, knowing it was going to be hard, especially because of what I experienced with my mental health trauma. And so I very much made sure that I mentally knew what quote unquote hard times were, knew what I've already been through and knew that if I could have overcome all of that, I can overcome the rest of life. And I think, you know, obviously there were very, very big up and downs, especially living in the music industry where I made sure my team understood and respected and supported me and my mental health recovery. But I was very, very within the music industry. I was signed to an artist development deal. I was told, you know, that I was very easy because I was a very healthy person. But, you know, to just, you know, stick with salads or do this or continuously talk about those dark times. And like you said, when you talk about the dark times so much, you're kind of put back in that darkness. You need that light to balance out. And so I very much was able to grow my recovery and my brand and my life through the light from the darkness. And then it just automatically started me practicing that to dwell in things as they are and to learn from each time, you know, when I have bad days, I very much step back from it and let myself feel and know that there are still lessons I need to learn. Once you are done experiencing life, it's over. Like life continues. And I very much say the world doesn't always get better. You just do. And that's really what we are like doing in life. It's, it's experiencing. And there's always going to be hard times and good days. But you look, you know, obviously where you've come and you've gotten this far. And you didn't just come this far to come this far. So you just keep yourself going. And it can be exhausting. I very much get tired when I'm like having to realize a lot of things continuously talking about, like you said, those dark times, because it's not something I want to always look back on because of the light and the life that I live. But I can also obviously see how it helps a lot of people. And so it very much, there's a big determination for someone who has been the underdog, who has been in those situations where no one believes in them because of this, this, and this, whatever it is, especially when it comes to mental health. I always tell people that in the end, if they judge me, if they judge my scars, that's their own opinion, but I am not my mental health trauma. I am me. 
And I am me because of my mental health trauma, because it helped teach me and make me become who I am. But I don't dwell on my scars. I'm not my scars. They're just a part of me. I am above all of what I've been through. And so it very much makes me very confident in not only speaking out about it, but showing and accepting that this all happened. I'm not going to deny any of it. And I want people to know about, like you said, like for the parents to bring an understanding to it all. So it honestly, for me, I find it a privilege to be able to have overcome everything and to have that light and to have that optimism that everyone can, if they really choose to do it for themselves. How do people find you? How do people find your music, stay in touch with you, ask you questions? Where where can yeah. parents go to learn more about Amy? Um, luckily, my website is just amycorey.com. It's just C-O-R-E-Y. <laughs> and then I'm on Instagram. Everything is Amy Corey. My music is still on Spotify. And um, the biggest thing about my social media that I tell both parents and children slash students that I go speak to is that you can follow me on my journey and I most likely will follow you back, but you can also talk to me about your journey. I had a girl tell me that when I came to her school, that was the day she went cold turkey on her self-harm and that she is now over a year sober from that. And just keeping up with, you know, I'm just rooting people on, just like showing them that they aren't alone and that if they, in the end, don't feel like anyone understands them, that I truly do. And I will let them figure it out on their own, but that I'm in support on them, not only getting better for themselves, but becoming something so much bigger because of it. My guest today has been Amy Corey. It is, as I said at the beginning, and I, and I know you feel it, it's one thing to hear from experts who have spent all these years studying development and you know, brain chemistry and the research and the paper writing. And it's another thing to hear it from the mouth of someone who has survived and is thriving. And I know as a parent, because I've worked with you guys for 20 years, I am a parent. I know as a parent, it is hard to see these destructive strategies as a child be anything other than their destruction. And we are so often peppered with the horror stories of where these destructive behaviors go that we forget that people like Amy, that people like me, that maybe people like you, you survive this. You thrive. You, you win anyway. You win despite what happened when you were younger. So when you, when you look at your child's scars and your brain goes to the fear of like, you're going to live with that forever. Remember Amy's and her future of her scars because she's leveraged it. She's turned it into something beautiful and powerful. I want to thank Deepin Productions for producing this podcast and creating the music. I want to thank Your Cause Consulting for making sure that these shows are parked in front of the parents who need them. And parents, I want to thank you for listening and being with me each week on Beyond Risk and Back. Remember, parents, take care of yourselves first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because that's how you're going to do your best work with your children. My thanks to Amy Corey. Go to amycorey.com and learn more. See you next week.